This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Health and Living with me, Lim Su. And the Director General of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, recently reiterated that the next pandemic is not a matter of if, but when. Now, his warning is merely the latest in a string of what experts have been saying for years, that pandemics will only become more common and that we must be prepared, whether it's a pathogen that we already know or that we've yet to discover. So on today's show, I'm joined by Assistant Professor Dr. Ruklanti Diaulwis. Um, she's the Deputy Director of the Duke and US Centre for Outbreak Preparedness. She's also a viral immunologist. Um, and I want to find out more about what this means, what outbreak preparedness means in a post-COVID world and how countries, especially here in Southeast Asia, um, can prepare ourselves before the next outbreak hits. Ruki, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, Suan, for inviting me. Now, I want to start, I guess, with concepts, right? Because when we talk about pandemic preparedness or when we hear about pandemic preparedness, we hear terms being thrown like um, disease X, emerging infectious diseases. These two in particular are used fairly often. What do they actually mean and are they linked to each other? Right, that's an excellent question. Now, you know, emerging infectious diseases, the actual uh, wording has very specific meaning um, in sort of the scientific community. Uh, usually, so it means pathogens that uh, are either newly emerging, so something like SARS-CoV-2 that newly emerged into our community, or it refers to pathogens that are some sort of existing, maybe at a very low level, but are increasing rapidly. Uh, and also expanding in geography. So that's really the term uh, that defines emerging infectious diseases, yeah. Mm. And in terms of the link to disease X, Mm -hmm. disease X really means something that is unknown, Mm -hmm. right? So X, something that's new that's going to pop up in our community. And really, you know, most likely the disease X that we have to tackle out there is going to be an emerging infectious disease. So that's sort of how they're related to each other. Mm. And in in the context of this discussion as well, there's always the concern or discussions that these diseases are likely to be zoonotic in nature as well. Why is that the case? So interestingly, so zoonotics, again, just to define zoonotic pathogens, right? Zoonotics are pathogens that jump from uh, animal reservoir. Mm-hmm. It can be farming animal, it can also be wild animals. So from an animal reservoir to a human. Now, um, there are many reasons why this might happen uh, because of sort of uh, human encroachment into animal space. So as we urbanize, most of our uh, uh, countries and cities are expanding. So we are sort of, you know, encroaching into their space, right? Uh, And so then uh, they're more likely to have these jumps. Uh, Then obviously climate change is causing uh, animals to sort of change their habitats too, right? Now, why are they... So, you know, this brings humans and animals together, which means these jumps are going to happen more and more often. Mm -hmm. Now, why does this worry us? This worries us because a pathogen that comes from an animal into a human population, if it's a pathogen that has not been seen by the human population, then we don't have any immune defense against this pathogen. 
which means we're really sort of a naive population just waiting to be infected. Mm. And that is what worries us uh, in terms of zoonotic pathogens. And that's why um, many of us believe um, disease X might be a zoonotic pathogen. Mm, all right. Um, Ruki, you know, we talk about the likelihood of another pandemic happening, that it's going to be more common. But what do we do? We actually have hard numbers on the likelihood of another pandemic or what even that might look like. OK, so pandemics, are, one can never predict mm-hmm. uh, pandemics, right? Um we don't have any hard numbers. Uh, have modeling predicted? Uh, are they accurate enough? I, I would say we, we don't have hard numbers on mm. when a pandemic, a pathogen of such a pandemic potential will pop up and where it will pop up. We we do know where there are high risks mm-hmm. um, of where these pandemics can pop up. And, uh, you know, we can go deeper into that a little bit later. But in, with regards to your question on when, it is very uh, difficult to predict. However, what we can do is look at the history mm-hmm. of the cycles of when pandemics uh, pop up. And between sort of two to five years, or rather, sorry, five to ten years, there is a pathogen of, let's say, concern that pops up. Mm-hmm. So we had pathogens such as SARS-1 that popped up. Then we had H1N1. Then we had SARS-CoV-2. So, and these seem to be sort of coming through every sort of five to ten years. So all we can say is something will pop up in the next five to ten years and we should be ready for it. Mm. You mentioned where, and I want to dive into that a bit because low and middle income countries, particularly when we look at Asia and Africa, right? Um, these are traditionally seen as hotbeds for new um, pathogens to start and to spread. Um, I'm thinking of things like, of course, COVID-19. We had um, Ebola, SARS-CoV-1, um, Nipah virus, or even MERS, yeah. um, things like that, right? But uh, but right now, with mm-hmm. increasing um, human encroachment upon um, the natural environment with climate change. Are these regions still hotbeds? What the modelling studies have shown is that, uh, and also for good reason, mm-hmm. um, Asia pops up at a, as a region of very high risk mm-hmm. of outbreaks and also zoonotic risk. Um, and, you know, the more studies need to be done to see what climate change is going to do to that risk. But what we do know about climate change is that climate change is exacerbating many of the pathogen groups. For instance, it's worsening vector-borne diseases, mm-hmm. right? Mosquito-borne diseases, rat-borne diseases, rodent-borne diseases. Because for mosquitoes, for instance, it's expanding the geographical region that climate change, climate effects, mm-hmm. that the mosquito can survive. So that in itself is going to bring about more mosquito-borne pathogens, right? Um, now, in terms of zoonotics, like you mentioned, uh, climate change is leading to the habitats decreasing, right? Less and less forests, less and less greenery. Um, and of course, these are also things that are coming about because of urbanization, but climate change is also having that effect. So, you know, we're just seeing more and more uh, animal-to-human interaction moving forward and that will exacerbate the number of zoonotic jumps that will happen. And, you know, anytime there is a chance for zoonotic jumps uh, for viruses between uh, animals to humans, there will always be a risk of a new uh, sort of outbreak uh, pathogen uh, popping up. Mm. Why historically has 
this region been that hotbed for zoonotic spillover, right? What have been the circumstances that increased that likelihood of these um, outbreaks happening in the past here? Um, One of the main one has been uh, population density. So there are many factors. One has been population density. You know, our region is very highly dense region. Uh, Even when we compare to Africa, right? Mm. Africa geographically is a very large uh, space, uh, uh, mass of land. But Asia, we have a lot of people in a concentrated Mm -hmm. area. That obviously leads to uh, increased risk. We also have uh, populations that are highly urbanizing. So cities that have, you know, in the past 10, 20, 30 years have evolved. They've gone from little villages to sort of mega cities. And, you know, that that really means that in terms of the land use, there's been major changes, right? So, um, so the way we interact with animals have also changed. Um, there is, of course, um, a more sensitive topic in terms of wild animal trades. Mm. Um, and I think, uh, you know, this happens in many other parts of the region and uh, world as well, not just Asia. But that also um, does pose a risk uh, for zoonotic jumps. Mm, all so right. Yeah. Mm. We'll go for a quick break. And when we come back, I will ask you more about the need for collaboration when it comes to preventing or preparing for the next outbreak. On the show with me today is Assistant Professor Dr. Ruklanti Diawis, Deputy Director of the Duke and US Centre for Outbreak Preparedness in Singapore. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back on Health and Living BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su. And on the show today, we are talking about outbreak preparedness and how we can prepare ourselves or potentially even prevent um, another outbreak from happening um, in this region and preventing that from becoming another pandemic like we saw with COVID-19. Joining me to weigh in on this topic today is Assistant Professor Dr. Ruklanti De Alvis, Deputy Director of the Duke and US Centre for Outbreak preparedness in Singapore. Um, Before the break, we were talking a bit about, I guess, a historical look on why pandemics happen, the sort of circumstances that come together um, that contribute to an increased likelihood of an outbreak, um, particularly in this Asian region. Now, I want to talk about um, collaboration, Rookie. We've seen that happen. Um, We we saw that happen a lot during COVID-19. And yet there were also um, criticisms that not enough was happening, right? Um, What has past outbreaks taught us about the need to collaborate, not just across borders, but I'm thinking across institutions as well? What did we do well? What do we need to improve upon? I mean, we we knew this all the time, but I think SARS-CoV-2 reiterated the lesson that pathogens don't respect national borders, Mm -hmm. right? The national borders we have are very artificial and pathogens cross this all the time, specifically in Asia. Uh, I mean, across the world, but Asia, uh, there is a lot of travel and interconnectedness between Asian countries. So uh, if something pops up in one nation, Mm -hmm. Uh, in Southeast Asia and South Asia, it's very likely it's going to spread across Asia very fast. And that's what we saw, right? So SARS-CoV-2 proved that. Now, the lessons we have learned, I think some of the challenges, let's say some of the challenges to begin with was really when when the pandemic started, Mm -hmm. um, it was a pathogen where we had very little information on 
uh, and also it started in certain regions of the world. It, you know, not all the countries had it, um, which means that there had to be sharing of information quickly. Um, sharing of information um, and accurate information, but also constant information and timely information so that other countries can act upon uh, or make informed decisions and um, outbreak control uh, sort of actions. Mm -hmm. Now, um, what happened very early on is the problem is information wasn't flowing very quickly. Um, you know, there had to be trust relationships built as well. Uh, and, you know, when, when everyone is stressed, to build those trust relationships is very difficult. So that is something that needs to be done now, now that the pandemic is sort of wrapping up. Um, and, you know, another thing about the challenges is we didn't know the potential of how big of an issue SARS-CoV-2 was. So I think countries were also very worried about sharing information at that point. So, you know, there were a lot of challenges. Certain areas of the world or Asia were not equipped to really face such a threat, uh, such an, a pandemic, uh, that was an issue as well. Also, um, a lot of uh, outbreak or infectious disease control, um, let's say diagnostics or vaccines or so on, um, we had sort of turned it, uh, given it over to the private sector to handle. Mm -hmm. And I think what we saw during the outbreak was, you know, really governments getting involved uh, collaborating with the private sector to really speed up the development of those tools, which were instrumental in getting us out of this uh, pandemic. So those are the challenges. And if you ask me lessons learned, and, you know, these are only a few of them. I'm mm -hmm. probably not summarizing all. Um, one definitely is uh, quickly sharing information. I think that is important, a timely sharing of information across borders. So if a pathogen pops up, say in, uh, I'm just giving an example, in uh, in Singapore, for instance, uh, you know, our neighboring countries will want to know what uh, more information about it. And if we were to share information uh, across and aggregate that information, we're more likely to learn more about it. That's one. Sharing of timely information is critical. Second, is we need to do more about bringing up the capacity and expertise in not just the high-income countries that have it, but also across the region and countries that have lower resources. We have to be strong as a, a region together. Mm. So we're only as strong as our weakest link, right? So it's the same for uh, defending against outbreaks. So we really need to make more efforts. And this is what is happening across the world. There's a lot of capacity building efforts, including some of the activities that we are doing here at Duke and US. Um, the last one is combined more multi-sectorial efforts as well. And, you know, it doesn't have to be within one nation where private sector, national governments and academics work together. It can be across countries as well. Um, especially maybe certain nations have very strong vaccine manufacturers. Maybe they can work with other countries to set up clinical trials, to really develop vaccines and diagnostics and so on. And I think um, as we enhance this sort of relationships, we are much more likely to be able to both track pathogens as well as uh, develop tools that can control and prevent pathogens such as diagnostics and therapeutics and vaccines. Mm. But Ruki, how do we overcome 
territorialism in research and data sharing because we saw that during the pandemic and we also saw, I guess, the other side of the coin, which is the fear of being discriminated against, right? We saw that happen to China initially and then later we saw that happen to um, South Africa and Botswana when they discovered the Omicron variant. Is that going to be a huge hurdle? That is going to be a huge hurdle. But it is a hurdle now that we've we've seen, we're aware of. So um, the point about data, uh, sovereignty, and so on, um, that was one of the things I think academia learned in a big way. So one of you know, our priorities in academia is mm-hmm. to sort of publish and that sort of thing. But I think most of the academic world learned when there is uh, an urgent emerge, uh, situation, uh, we need to share information quickly, right? It's not about the highest impact publication. You know, during COVID that mm-hmm. came about, it existed before. That's the funny part. Mm-hmm. These things existed before these solutions, but it wasn't being used, is to put up preprints, right? Where the academic worlds would still get, you know, recognition for doing that work, but the information would be shared with the world as open access preprints, mm-hmm. Um and that became much more widely everyday use now. Um, so that's one of the things. Second, about so backlash. So if you if you share information about potentially pathogenic uh, uh, virus or so on, um, and you know the backlash of especially getting travel restrictions and whatnot, you know that is uh, something that is being discussed. Um, I think some of those solutions might come out from regional efforts. So definitely African region, Africa CDC is doing a lot of um, efforts in trying to first share data Mm. within their African countries and then coming with solutions. Definitely the ASEAN region has come up with three different centers um, called the ACFEED. So I think time, we need to give them a bit of time to get organized. Um, But I think these regional efforts will help to protect some of the countries, especially, and, you know, encourage them to share information and ensure that there's no backlash, that they're not paying the price for letting the world know that such a pathogen is emerging. Mm. At your centre, Ruki, I know that you're also working on the Asia Pathogen Genomics Initiative, also known as Asia PGI, um, that was established in late 2021. So about almost uh, about three years or so. Could you share more about why that was set up then? And how do you see that that need for um, pathogen genomic sequencing and collaboration? Um, how, how will that prepare us for the next outbreak? Of course, of course. It's, so... Um before I go into the Asian pathogen genomics, I might take a step back. Mm-hmm. Um, so just as Asian pathogen genomics or Asia PGI was launched, uh, we Duke and US launched a new center, right? So that's a center I'm at, the Center for Outbreak Preparedness, which is really a very collaborative um, center. It collaborates, it brings together sort of academics, uh, also national government entities, uh, individuals from different sort of disciplines. And um, the reason being is we recognized that the region uh, needs support and we need to act together in the face of the next outbreak uh, and enhance the security of Asia against pathogens. Now, the reason I mentioned the Center for Preparedness is because it was the ideal sort of location to then hold the secretariat for the Asia PGI. Mm-hmm. Now, a little bit of information about Asia PGI Asia PGI uh, currently has about 14 countries uh, Mm. as part of it. 
so several countries in South Asia and several in Southeast Asia. Um, it uh, brings together over 45 to 50 institutions across this region. And the reason being, um, it also includes, the reason why there's so many institutions is because it includes uh, national government institutions. It brings together NGOs and academics in basically institutions that are all focusing on genomics for surveillance purposes. Um, now, what, there are four objectives for Asia PGI, four main objectives. One is partnerships. Mm -hmm. We want to strengthen those partnerships now before the next outbreak. So as, as I think there's been a, a term coined as peacetime uh, when there is uh, no pandemic. We want to do it now during mm -hmm. peacetime so that when the next outbreak comes or wartime, we're ready as a region. That's one. Second is capacity building. So we want to ensure that this region is is strong, that even the regions where the least capacity was there in terms of sequencing a pathogen and in the face of the next outbreak can sequence their pathogens and track it and share information. Third one is we want to ensure that the what we call it the enabling environment, that's things like policies mm. we want to, and finance. Uh, we want to ensure these countries have sorted out the logistics and so on, something that allows them to actually implement their surveillance system properly. The last one is monitoring and research. And we are, after all, an academic institution. And also there's value in ensuring that there is some monitoring and research happening in the region. So we track the progress. You know, if there is no progress, then we need to do things differently. Mm. That's, and if there is progress, we need to uh, congratulate ourselves. But we also will then show the world that there are these things that are lessons learned, that are working. So I think uh, these are the four sort of objectives for Asia PGI. Um, there are also four different work streams for Asia PGI, and we can discuss that a little bit later if you're interested. Mm. I guess I'm curious, Rookie, when you're looking at, I guess, um, potential pathogens that come up when you're doing this, these genomic sequencing, right? How do you know what's worth being concerned about and what is it? Uh, that's a brilliant question. So um, a sequence by itself is not sufficient, mm -hmm. right? There's only so much uh, a public health official, a scientist, an epidemiologist can do with just a sequence. Mm -hmm. It needs to be attached to metadata. And when I say metadata, it's a little bit more information mm -hmm. about this, the, the sample that the sequence came from. It is not information, identifying information about the patient. I think that's very important to recognize. It is not identifying information about the patient. So there's no patient privacy being at stake. What, you, what we need to know is, is this sequence coming from a pathogen which caused a severe disease? That's one information. I'm giving examples of mm -hmm. information. Is it, where is it coming from? Is it coming from a city, urban center? Is it coming from a hospital? Um, so information, is it coming from males or females, aged populations or pediatrics? These are informations that needs to come tagged to that sequence. Now, one sequence is also not enough, mm -hmm. right? If a country or a public health official or ministry is supposed 
is it needs to take action. They need that sequence to be compared to other sequences, either from the same country or, um, you know, it's even better if it's from the region or globally, because then there's more information to work with. Mm. And that's why you have this collaboration across institutions and across borders, right? You can compare data. Correct, correct. So that's essentially, so one of the um, uh, topic of discussion is about data sharing uh, and metadata sharing. Um, you know, after the pandemic, uh, better and better systems have databases have come about where and better more efforts are being put into capturing, uh, you know, asking the question, what is the relevant data that we even need to make an informed decision and um, how can we capture it? And where can we put it so that information can be shared very quickly? Mm. It's been more than four years since SARS-CoV-2 was first reported, um, was first sequenced. People are, of course, still talking about, you know, where the virus came from. Now, I mean, it seems like we will likely never have concrete answers on where exactly it originated from. But, um, of course, a lot of the reports, the evidence points towards it being a, a natural zoonotic spillover. But from your experience, Rookie, how important is it for us to figure out the origins of whether it's any novel pathogen or COVID-19 in the context of preparing for the next outbreak, how will understanding where one virus from the, in the past came from help us prepare? So in terms of the origins of SARS-CoV-2, and I think this is uh, a topic that's been sort of investigated and debated to death, mm -hmm. um, there are both short-term and long-term implications. You know, in the short term, if it's possible to know that's great, but actually in the short term, what's important is that there is action taken rather than to curb the outbreak rather than looking at where the origins are. Now, in terms of long term for preparedness, yes, we do need to figure out where this came from, right? But remember, even SARS-1, it took, what, about two decades almost, 17 years or so before mm -hmm. we really, really had evidence to show that it is, uh, it came from bats. So I think, um, you know, going into this, we need to go with, uh, yes, this is important. We need to know where the, the origins of SARS-CoV-2 and why do we need to know it? Because it will help us with our outbreak preparedness efforts to make sure that we, we put in uh, ways to circumvent this kind of um, reduce, minimize the risk from these sources. However, we going into this, we need to be a bit practical. This sort of you know, the origins of a certain novel pathogen takes years mm -hmm. before it's solidly confirmed where it came from. Mm. So, All right. Um, I guess I want to look ahead as well um, to talk about, um, I guess, how we can get everyone prepared now. Um, we'll go for another quick break and when we come back, um, we'll continue this discussion. On the show with me today is Assistant Professor Dr. Ruklanti Diolwis, Deputy Director of the Duke and US Centre for Outbreak Preparedness in Singapore, joining me on this segment of Health and Living. We'll be right back on BFM 89.9.
Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su An. We are talking about outbreak preparedness, particularly in the Asian region, on the show today. And joining me to weigh in on this subject is Assistant Professor Dr. Ruklanti De Always. She's the Deputy Director of the Duke and US Centre for Outbreak Preparedness. Now, we've spoken a lot about um, collaboration, Ruki, and how we can move forward. But I also want to talk a bit about policy and risk communication because that's a huge part of it, right? Um, um, but if anything, you know, COVID-19 showed us that a segment of society and some of our policymakers are quite willing to just stick their head in the sand and hope that this will pass regardless of the cost. Does that bode well for outbreak preparedness in the region? Are you hopeful? <laughs> well, I am hopeful in the fact that um, we have become better communicators in all sectors. Obviously, there's room to improve, mm. but uh, academics, even governments, everyone has become better communicators. And the reason why that is important is because, no, we shouldn't be hiding our heads in the sand. Uh, we should be communicating to the community, to the people, say that such uh, a risk is coming up, a threat is popping up. And that is not to scare the population, right? It's so that people are in the know, they're informed, and if we were to inform them from the beginning, that shock, that last minute sort of rush, there's no need for that because you're actually preparing the population with information. Um, so it's important to really be transparent with the population. It's also important to communicate that when a new sort of threat like a pathogen pops up, to say, you know, we don't have all the answers right now. Mm. We know very little about this pathogen. So it's best to be careful. I think it's good to know that and to communicate that. It's also good to communicate. And, you know, we shouldn't be afraid of saying, you know, as an outbreak is evolving, the messages we communicate in the beginning will change. Mm. It will no longer be appropriate. And we shouldn't be afraid to say that. We shouldn't be afraid to say, you know, this outbreak has evolved. Now we're putting in, in new policies and, you know, a different policies, even policies that went against the previous ones, because now the situation is different from before. And I think the more we communicate to the people, the better people will understand. I mean, think about it. Because of all the science communication from various different sectors in the past four years, everyone under, or most people understand what pathogens are. Mm -hmm. Most people have heard about antibodies. I'm an antibody scientist. Mm -hmm. I've been working on antibodies for 15, 20 years. <laughs> My family didn't know what antibodies was. And now after COVID, they know what antibodies when I mention it. Mm. So, you know, vaccines, people are in a little bit more aware of vaccines. Of course, the downside is misinformation. Mm. So we need to ensure, and that's another reason, uh, uh, sources of sort of um, experts need to ensure that their voice is heard. Science communication really is sort of everyone's responsibility. Uh, so we need to, when there is misinformation circulating and their voice gets uh, louder and louder, we need to ensure that, uh, you know, um, sort of trusted sources are also out there communicating the information mm. and accurate information. 
Mm. I think an informed society is beneficial in terms of how we can continue to communicate that risk. But like you yes. said, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because these people can right. easily um, counter your information with misinformation. And there's definitely no right. shortage of that these days. Right. And, you know, there's, there's this thing about science communication. In an outbreak, we, I think... Um, you know, outbreak officials, academics, everyone going to recognize we're in this together, together with the community. There's a huge responsibility for the community to play mm. in actually curbing outbreaks, right? In in, in within their their community, and I think they could they can only help out if we communicate that risk to them, communicate that information to them. So I think uh, science communication really helps to glue people together, our mm. society together. Mm. Um, I don't know if I'm going to end up um, scaring people with these questions, but I do want to ask, what kind of risk does another pandemic pose for humanity? Um, because I'm thinking, okay, you have you might have a segment of society who will point out that, well, most of us survive COVID-19 unscathed, so we'll find a way to survive the next pandemic. But from someone who works in this area, right, what are your concerns if another outbreak hits? There are areas in terms of what my concerns are, um, there are areas that we need to put uh, more efforts into developing. Um, that's not to say that there are no efforts going on. There are ongoing efforts to develop these areas. And some of those areas are obviously genomics. So that's why Asia PGI, Santa Barbara Preparedness, Duke NUS, we're doing a lot of putting a lot of efforts into surveillance. Mm. Surveillance needs to be strengthened. And, you know, High-income countries are doing a very good job, but we need to ensure that we we help our region to strengthen surveillance. Also, some targeted surveillance where zoonotic jumps are happening. That's one. Second is we need to strengthen the regulatory system in the region. In terms of, um, for instance, when certain things like vaccines come on the market, we need to ensure that our region, the other other countries and region are also able to quickly look at uh, the safety, the efficacy of that vaccine and roll it out within their country. Um, vaccine manufacturing, vaccine R&D, I think these are very important areas. Um, the legal frameworks are also important to strengthening the region. And that has to do, and you know, it's been debated quite a bit, and it's being debated in the pandemic treaty mm. uh, about IPs, intellectual property. And that is another area that, you know, we really need to make headway in these, not just one area. So surveillance, technical capabilities, vaccine R&D and manufacturing, vaccine regulation, also regulation of therapeutics and possibly diagnostics and legal frameworks. We, we really need to uh, look at our IPs. We need to make sure these IPs are transferable and put in some open access clauses where they are shareable during an outbreak, this emergency situations. Mm -hmm. So I think um, I am hopeful moving forward. I think a lot of the work that, um, you know, we are doing with our partners, but also globally, uh, regionally and globally, there's a lot of people trying to make a difference. Um, it doesn't, maybe there's more we could do. So my concerns are really that when the next outbreak comes, we may not be ready. But I, I believe, just to end it on a positive note, I believe we'll be ready, more ready than the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic for the next one. All right. Assuming and we go on like this. <laughs> mm, and, and, an 
I think, um, as you mentioned, that there are efforts happening in the region. So I think um, people should be a bit more assured that that you know we might be that we should be better prepared. And um, these are, I guess, conversations that we can have among ourselves in the community, right, to keep that awareness and information um, flowing. Right. Exactly. Mm. All right. And on that note, thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Rookie. Thank you. Thank you, Suan. I've been speaking to Assistant Professor Dr. Ruklanti, the always Deputy Director of the Duke and U.S. Centre for Outbreak Preparedness on how we can be prepared for the next pandemic. I'm Lim Suan and this has been Help and Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.